Let's just pray together before we come to God's Word. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You that uh, this Word is is not uh, primarily about what we're supposed to do, but about what You've done. And I pray that You would grow in our hearts in amazement, a wonder at what You have done that You've not left this world. And so I pray that you'd be uh, with the one who teaches, Lord, you know that my sins are are many. I pray that, uh, Holy Spirit, you would cleanse me, and uh, as I come and bring your holy, uh, holy perfect word, and you bring it to your people through uh, an imperfect uh, messenger. So uh, give us your grace now, be our teacher, be present with us, and open our hearts to your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So the text we're looking at is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10, uh, 10 through 12. What do you, is that what you have in your bulletin, 10 through 12? 8 through 12, okay, sorry. <clears throat> Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord, and it's for our good. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. So now, the average person in Bellingham, if they, uh, you guys, I guess, but if other people are coming in and joining us in our worship service, so, so far what we've done, great. You know, it's a little weird. You're singing to Jesus, praying out loud, confessing your sins to one another. You know, most people say, you know, it's a little strange, I don't get it, but, you know, hey, if it helps you, if it makes your life better, all power to you, great, do it. And then, you know, when we come to this part of the service, and uh, the pastor walks up, and uh, for many people living in Bellingham, or, or even people who've grown up in the church, had an experience in church, they might kind of look at me and be like, what do you got there in your hand, pastor? What's that? Is that a Bible? What is that? Is that, the, is that the Word of God? What are, you, what are you planning to do with that, huh? Those are the very words of God. You're going to stand up there, we're going to sit here, and you have the very words of God in your hand. How can we trust you with those? Right? How can we trust you? You're, those are, that's the very words of God. What makes you think that you have so much power over us that you can tell us what to do because you have God's Word in your hand? And, you know, some of you say, wow, you know, I've been coming here every week. I haven't thought about that. Uh, I'm putting a lot of trust in you. Uh, but, you know, it's an important question. What that, that kind of question, that suspicion, is something that really over the last half century is, has been what's been named the hermeneutic of suspicion. That uh, We live in a culture that says, uh, listen, if, if anyone, uh, you have to be very suspicious if anyone says that they have the absolute truth. Truth, capital T. If you have the truth, listen, that's too much power. Listen, look at how much power you have. And why, and why are you insisting that what you have is the truth? Why are you so insistent on that? Is that because you really care about us or because you want power? 
And so that's why for most people in Bellingham, you know, a common thing to say is, uh, I'm a spiritual person, but I don't believe in organized religion. You know, what, what that really means is, I, we cannot trust religious leaders to have in their possession absolute truth. And so we say, you know, there are no absolute truths. You, you make up, you find your own truth. Because if you have absolute truth, what you're going to do is you're going to squash people with it. You're going to, you're going to uh, hammer them down. You're going to hold them tight. Tell them they can't do things. Now, as many of you know, the kind of standard Christian response to that is, oh, there are no absolute truths? Are you absolutely sure about that? <laughs> are you absolutely sure there are no absolute truths? Isn't that an absolute statement? Uh, are, aren't you squashing Christians by saying there are no absolute truths? Aren't you saying I have to obey your form of truth? The fact is, no, no matter what, you're going to believe in absolute tra- truths, whether you think absolute truths exist or not. <laughs> you believe in them. But as Christians, before we blow off saying the hermeneutic of suspicion, that's getting suspicious that the fact that I'm going to stand up here and say this is God's infallible word, um, we have to understand that a big part of Jesus' ministry had a high suspicion of religious leaders and the power that they were getting from their religious authority. Let me just read for you, read, for example, uh, Matthew 23. The scribes and the Pharisees, uh, this is Jesus um, talking, uh, the, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do. They tie heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They, uh, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. So they take the Bible and say, we're the interpreters of the Bible, call, I'm rabbi, I'm, you have to be, I'm your teacher, I'm your father. I can, they love that power. And so they're using the authority of God's word to grab power for themselves. And so, uh, you know, some of you might come from a background where you've been in a church where the pastor uses that power to say, this is God's people, this is God's truth, so uh, you have to do what I say. And so that puts you in a question, how am I going to wrestle with, how can I embrace an absolute truth? How can I trust someone or trust the Bible to embrace it? How can I open myself to that? And not be suspicious of anyone, of any pastor getting up. Well, um, the text that we're looking at in this today, um, you know, Peter is giving a, a pastoral letter where he is going to uh, tell these Christians to do some very painful obedience, to obey in, in, in very painful ways. And, um, and the reason that he tells them they're going to obey is because of what's in the Bible. But what he doesn't say is because. Uh, the Bible is absolute truth, but he says because of what's in the Bible. What's the content? Because you're going to have an absolute truth no matter what. So you've, the big question you've got to ask is, what is what's the content of the absolute truth? Let's read this passage again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, okay, he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, the people who wrote in the Old Testament, the, uh, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you 
by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What Peter uh, is saying is um, he's focusing us on the content of the Bible. Why can you embrace it? Why can you trust it? Why can he ask you to do painful obedience? It's not just this is the word of God obey, but because of what's in it. What we're going to see is two things about what's in the Bible um, that gives us reason to embrace it as an absolute truth and to not be suspicious of it. So the first thing is that the whole Bible is about God's suffering king. The whole Bible is pointing towards God's suffering king. I'm going to explain that. Second of all, uh, the whole Bible um, calls us to obey not out of fear, but out of amazement. Calls us to obey not out of fear, but out of amazement. So we're going to unpack those two things. So first of all, the whole Bible is about God's suffering king. Now, kind of in line with this concern about organized religion is the idea that basically, you know, a lot of people say what fundamentalist religion does is it causes people to fly airplanes into buildings or bomb abortion clinics. That's, uh, you know, that, it, it, you know, whether that's a problem, organized, you know, fundamentalist religion causes people to be violent, uh, intolerant, narrow-minded because they say God has revealed to us the truth of the world. And so we need to do whatever we can to stop the infidels, the people who are uh, not obeying God's truth. We have to stop them. And so, you know, that's a result. But, you know, I heard a sermon recently by a guy, Tim Keller, who I've mentioned before. He's a pastor in, in Manhattan. And he often talks about how his wife will point out to him that, uh, you know, it'd be, it's very unlikely that an Amish person is going to fly an airplane into a building um, uh, or bomb an abortion clinic or that much. I mean... You know, they might drive a horse and buggy into a building. I, that'd be pretty devastating, I guess. But, uh, the, um, but uh, by any definition of fundamentalist religion, the Amish are fundamentalist religion. There's no way they're going to be violent. I mean, some of you remember back in 2006, the guy came into the Amish schoolhouse and he killed five girls and then committed suicide. And the immediate response was not retaliation. The Amish community said, we need to forgive him. We need to not hold this against his family. He's going to go and stand before God, and he'll have to give an account before God, and God will judge him, but it's our responsibility to forgive. Why is that? You can't just say fundamentalist religion results in intolerance and violence. You have to ask, what is the fundamental? And the the Amish are Christians, so their fundamental is not that God kills his enemies, but that God came in Jesus Christ to die for his enemies so that they can be forgiven. That's their whole fundamental. That's the thing that they're holding on to. And so that even... Uh, oh, sorry, let me... Uh, where am I here? Um, so in fact, uh, you know, Rodney Stark, who wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, kind of points out that uh, even in the Roman Empire, which is the context in which Peter is writing, that you have... Uh, they had a, a kind of view of the world that's very similar to something like Bellingham, kind of there are no absolutes... You know, choose your own religion, find your own reality. You know, they had all these gods and temples, and and it's like pick the one, find the one that gets your crops to grow the best and, and makes you the most money. Find that one, stick with it. If it works, worship that god. I mean, that's kind of what we do. Find the one that works and and, and go with it. And one of the things that Rodney Sartre points out is that the Roman Empire was a remarkably brutal society, even though they were very tolerant. You know, they uh, very low status for women. 
Uh, actually, there was a huge overpopulation of men in the Roman Empire because uh, many girls were just killed uh, through, you know, abortion and infanticide. And uh, so the, uh, you know, the Roman Empire uh, would kill anyone that kind of rose up and challenged them. I mean, Jesus was kind of an example of that. I mean, Jesus wasn't really, in some ways, he was challenging the Roman Empire, but. He, he committed no crimes and they killed him because he was a threat of, of being another king. And uh, there was huge social uh, differences between the rich and the poor. And so when the Christian church arrived in the middle of the Roman Empire, they were a huge counterculture. And they were very narrow-minded. They believed Jesus is God. You have to believe in him to be saved. Uh, the Bible is the word of God. They are very narrow-minded. And yet they, uh, they brought huge dignity. I mean, it was the beginning of, of uh, the development of more rights for women. They, uh, many women became Christians simply for that reason, because the church treated them with more respect, and more dignity, and uh, they refused uh, abortion and, and killing of babies. And uh, the rich and the poor came, were, came into a worship service and sat right next to one another and worshipped as one body under God Almighty. And so here you have very narrow-minded Christians and this very in, uh, very tolerant Roman Empire, and the Christians had way more life. Way more, this beautiful counterculture that basically won over the, the Roman Empire. And why is it? It's not just because they were fundamentalists, it's because what was their fundamental? And that's kind of what, uh, what uh, Peter is bringing out here, is that the whole Bible is about God sending his chosen king, Jesus, who had all power, all glory, who everyone is, is to give allegiance to, and Jesus comes silently goes and bears the sins on the cross and suffers for his people to forgive him. That's the fundamental. And that doesn't cause you to, that doesn't cause you to uh, take advantage of people. That causes you to serve people and to love people when that's your, when that's your fundamental. And, uh, kind of one of the ways to understand the Bible is that basically the Bible is a story. And the Old Testament was a story that was looking for an ending. Or it was a promise that was looking for a fulfillment. That's, that's kind of what the Bible is. Old Testament promise, New, New Testament is fulfillment. And so uh, Peter kind of brings that out in this passage when he says that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What he's saying is that the writers of the Old Testament, they're, they're writing a story that's looking for an ending. They're looking for God's king. That's what the Christ means, the sufferings of Christ. The Christ is God's king who's going to come and bring peace to the world, and they're inquiring, they're searching carefully, and he's going to come and suffer. And then Peter goes on to say the same thing about the New Testament, right? So he talks about the Old Testament prophets, and then he says, uh, look at verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So who are those who preach the good news to you? That's Jesus' disciples. The authors of the New Testament. So he goes to the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says both of them are pointing to this event of Jesus' suffering. He says this is the climax. This is what it's all about. That's our fundamental. That's our absolute truth is that the Almighty God left heaven. You know, or as uh, Philippians says it, uh, you know, Jesus who is in the form of God uh, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, held on to. But, uh, you know, he humbled himself, he uh, came in the form of a certain servant in the likeness of men, and then he became obedient even to death, even to death on the cross. And so the whole, the whole fundamental is that the all-powerful Jesus, 
let go of his power. He wasn't grabbing after power. He didn't want. He, he let go of it to come and give his life for, for others. So now some of you say, well, that's great in theory. That's a great fundamental. But I, I, and I like Jesus. But a lot of pastors aren't like that. Right? That, they say that's their fundamental, maybe in theory, but their life doesn't represent that. And, uh, you know, that's certainly true. And so what that means is that, but as a church, one of the fundamental things that we're asking is when we're choosing our leaders, what is the thing that's their fundamental? What's their absolute truth? What's at the center of their spiritual life that they're holding on to? And, uh, you know, a lot of times we pick our leaders because of who's smart, who knows their theology, who's been in the church a long time, who's uh, good-looking, who's, uh, you know, whatever, who's funny, who's likable, whatever it is. But for the gospel, uh, the, the way that we should be choosing our leaders is who has the fundamental of the gospel. That they get that they are a sinner, that God, that Jesus left his power and glory in heaven and came down to bear our sins. And say, I, I needed him to do that. And, uh, you know, there's actually, you know, that's the fundamental that we're looking for. Actually, um, you know, I mentioned Tim Keller, who uh, I, I heard an interview about, about him where he was talking about how do you choose your pastoral staff that you're hiring? What's the main thing you're looking for? And the way that he put it is we're looking for someone for whom the gospel coin is dropped. We're looking for someone for whom the gospel, they get the sense, I'm a sinner and, and Jesus left his power to save me. That's my whole model for my life. That's the whole fundamental of my life. And what that does is that bears a certain fruit. When that coin is dropped, when you get that, when you've internalized that, there's a certain gentleness, there's a, an insistence on truth, and yet a, a forgiving spirit um, that comes with grabbing onto that. And what Keller says is that's the main thing we're looking for. So other things, gifts, they matter. Can they teach? Can they... Uh, uh, do they know the Bible? Those things matter. But this is the key thing. This is the central thing. And there's, you know, there's something... Uh, let me just, uh, you know, this is kind of a geeky uh, Bible thing that I want to point out about this te- text. You see that phrase there in, uh, in verse 11 where it talks about the sufferings of Christ. And this is kind of that little phrase that's kind of debated by commentators because they say, what? well, actually it doesn't read the sufferings of Christ. It says the sufferings ace. That's the Greek word, is Christ. Which means the sufferings to Christ, or the sufferings for Christ. So a lot of commentators say, you know, well, if this is the sufferings for Christ, that must be, he must be talking about our sufferings for Christ. We're his servants. So we need to suffer for him. One of the things that, uh, that's kind of the clue to this passage is the word ace is used in the, in the, the verse previous, in verse 12. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 10, where it says, the grace that was to be yours. You see that phrase? That actually just reads, the grace ace you. The sufferings ace Christ. And what Peter is having is a little parallel. The grace is for you. The favor. The love of all that Jesus had, all, all the way that God regards Jesus, that's for you. The sufferings that you should have had, the, the consequences for your sin and your rebellion against God, that's for Christ. And what he has there in this little parallel is the great exchange of the gospel. That what we deserved was laid on Jesus, and what Jesus deserved was laid on us. And, uh, and what he's saying is, this is the center. This is the thing that the Old Testament prophets were searching out. What is that? What that the angels are longing to look into. Uh, that's what it is, is this exchange. And that's the key thing that we uh, need to look for. You know, so in this church, in the next, sometime, probably in the next couple of years, you'll nominate elders. 
the question that you're asking is when you're thinking about elders, the world is telling you who's smart, who, uh, who's winsome, and uh, you know, who's likable. And, and those things are, those aren't bad things. Uh, who knows the Bible? Who's, who's got their theology down? But the thing that we need to look for in our church, and actually this is what Peter says in chapter 5. He uses uh, the same construction of the sufferings of Christ when he's talking about elders. And that's the question to look for. Does this person get the gospel? Do they get the great exchange? Has that humbled them? And that's, you know, that's what we want for our church. If we're going to become a church where we can trust our pastors with this kind of power, trust our elders with this kind of power, where they have in their hands the word of God, we got to know that in their hearts, the gospel is sunk in, okay? So, what does it look like, uh, what does life look like when the gospel has taken root, when the gospel coin has dropped? And that leads to our second point. So first, the whole Bible is about God's suffering king. The king, the almighty powerful, has suffered. He's not grabbed after power, but he suffered. That's our fundamental. Second, the whole Bible calls us to obey, not out of fear. Sorry, the whole Bible calls us to obey, not out of fear, but out of amazement. Now, uh, John Milton uh, was a, he's probably one of the greatest English writers in history. He was a Puritan writing in the uh, 1600s. And he's uh, most well known for uh, his epic poem, Paradise Lost, which is basically an extrapolation of Genesis 3, The Fall of Humanity. And uh, actually, he wrote it when he, he was blind, and he dictated 10,000 10, lines. It's one of the great works of English literature, and he was blind, dictating it from memory to scribes. And uh, he's obviously a genius. And uh, Paradise Lost, is, it's really wonderful to read. I read it, actually, Trevor and I read it with a friend uh, up on campus. He was kind of this, you know... Uh, Dead Poet Society kind of, you know, poetry kind of guy. And we're like, yeah, what's this mean? <laughs> you know? uh, but Paradise Lost begins uh, with Satan. In the first two, there's 12 books. And the first two books begin with Satan. Uh, he's basically in this lake of fire. And he's just been cast into hell by God because he's rebelled against God. And there's all these demons and angels in there. And he raises up his head. In the first two books, he basically gets these demons and devils together to begin to plan how are we going to take revenge against God, against heaven. And so they make this big plan that God has made this new world and he has these humans that he's made that he loves and he delights in them and they're his image bearers. And uh, so Satan comes up with a plan. We are going to cause these image bearers, these humans that he loves, to rebel against God. And that's how we will get God back for casting us out of heaven. And so... Uh, Satan says, I'm, I'm the one to go. So he, he, he begins this long journey from hell to earth, crossing the chasm. And in book three, the scene kind of changes from hell all the way up into heaven. And there's this great scene where uh, there's this huge court full of thousands of angels. And, uh, and the fa- God the Father and God the Son are sitting there watching... Satan go with his plan. They've watched the whole plan happening. And they see him going across the chasm. And the father begins to tell everyone the story that Satan is going to go and he's going to tempt hum- the humans. And they're going to rebel against God and, and they're going to fall into sin and misery. And uh, and everyone's hearing this. You know, and, and Milton kind of shows how God, nothing falls outside of God's plan. He's kind of sovereign, watching over the whole thing. And I, I put in your bulletin... Uh, a little line where, you know, he's talking about how uh, man is going to fall and uh, there's going to be 
consequences, that he's going to have to die because of his sin. And this is what it says. This is what the Father says. Die he. This, he's talking about Adam and Eve. Die he, or justice must. Unless for him some other able and is willing, pay the rigid satisfaction, death for death. Say, heavenly powers, where shall we find such love? Which of ye will be mortal to redeem man's mortal crime? And just the unjust to save dwells in all heaven charity so dear. So he's asking all the angels, is there anyone that will go and pay the price for the an immortal being go and pay the mortal price for his rebellion? And after he says that, the whole thousands of angels just go dead silent. And no one can bear to think of God's wrath falling upon them. And, uh, and Milton puts it like this, that mankind must have been lost, a judge to death in hell, uh, uh, doomed severe, had not the Son of God, in whom the fullness dwells of love divine, his dearest meditation renewed. And so there's this scene where the angels are silent, and the Son, God's Son, breaks the silence. And he says, you know your plans. You've already made them. You know that I will do whatever you want. I love you. And, you know, count me, behold me, that I, I will bear his wrath and I will defeat Satan. I will lead all God's, God's uh, lost image bearers. I will lead them out of sin and return them to you in full joy. And the Father responds to him and, and, and says, you know, the only reason you're doing that is because you're just like me. You love me and you know my heart. And, uh, and so they basically, in front of all these angels, they tell the whole story of as Satan is having his plan going across to, to tempt Adam and Eve. And, uh, and as soon as they're done speaking, thousands of angels hear the story of God's plan to send Jesus to die for man, to suffer, this suffering king. And they just said, ah! There's just this huge roar of angels that just begin cheering and playing harps and singing and laughing and dancing. And there's this huge celebration uh, in heaven. It's just this beautiful, I like wept the first time I read it. And uh, that's exactly what Peter is describing here. Is, uh, you know, he has this great line uh, in verse 12 where he's talking about the gospel and he says that at the end of verse 12 that these are things into which angels long to look. They long to before, they've heard about this, and now all of a sudden Jesus has come to redeem people. And they're in awe. They're saying, what, you know, what is happening? You know, uh, Peter, Peter is a good pastor. You know, he, these are people who are suffering, who are facing many trials as Christians, and he's going to call them to obey. And we're in, this is a pretty short letter. It's five fairly short chapters. And we're 12 verses in, and he has not told them to do anything. He's just told them what God has done for them. He's stirring in them an amazement of who God is. He's telling them the story. This is the salvation for you. This is the thing Old Testament prophets were searching. They wanted to know about it. Angels are, you know, the word that that says uh, uh, angels are longing to look into these things. It's actually the word for lusting after. (laughs) Angels are like lusting. They have this internal passion to know the gospel. And what he's stirring in, he says, you know what? Angels want to look into it. You're living it. Every difficult struggle that you're having, um, every, every difficult sin that you're wrestling with, difficult relationship that you're dealing with, God is using those. You are a part of God's plan of redemption. Angels long to know about it. And, that's what you, and so what he's doing is he's stirring in us a desire to obey 
not out of fear. You know, that's what I'm talking about at the beginning. Pastors are saying, obey out of fear. That's not what Peter does as a pastor. He stirs in us in amazement. Well, we're living in a world where God is working and he's planning. And Jesus, the Almighty God, gave up his power to come and suffer. And we're, we're wrapped up in the middle of it. We're not even spectators. We're part of the players now. And so that's why you should be. Why, why should you serve God? Why should you love Him? Look at what you're living in. And, uh, you know, the, uh, all those people are kind of talking about the hermeneutic of suspicion. You look at a lot of people who are grabbing onto an absolute truth. You know, you take an, an environmentalist as an, an absolute truth, and they say, you need to reduce your carbon footprint, or you will destroy the world, and humanity will go extinct. That is obey out of fear. You know, so or or you need to find out who you are, um, or your life will be a waste. You need to find out who you really are, what, and get into your, or your life will be a waste. What is that? Obedience out of fear. You know, uh, you do not sleep around, or you will get gonorrhea. <laughs> Obedience out of fear, right? This, it is a threat, and you know what? There are consequences for your, uh, there are consequences for your action, but. Uh, that's obedience out of fear. That's not what Peter does. He say, you know, he says there are consequences, but he says that our fu- um, our fundamental uh, is what God has done in Jesus Christ. That he rescues sinners. And when we grab onto that with our hearts, we obey, uh, not out of fear, not because it's a threat, not because the absolute truth of this is morality is just being shoved on us, but because we see what God has done. And we say, I want to be a part of that. I'm amazed at it too. And so that's why every week, you know, you come here and Chad and I are preaching. You know what? We don't give you seven steps to a better life. You might have wanted that. What we give you is Jesus. We give you the gospel every week. This is what Jesus has done for you. This is who God is. And when that happens, it changes who you are. And you'll find a joy. You'll find a gentleness. You'll find a patience. You'll find a love uh, for people. And that's, uh, and that's ultimately how do you be a Christian in the crucible is by being amazed at what God's done in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the amazement, uh, the amazing thing that you've done in Jesus. That this is real. This is the story of our world. And we pray that you would uh, stir up our hearts to see what you have done for us and to see who we are in Jesus. And I pray for these brothers and sisters here that um, you would stir in them in amazement, um, uh, that we would go out into the world full of joy, uh, full of hope, and full of the reality that you are with us. And we pray that we would not grab after power, but that we would be humble, that we would follow the model of Jesus who uh, did humble himself and became obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross, that we might be like him and that we might be his people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.